The sermon is going to be a little bit longer than what you're used to, so let's get that collective sigh of disgust over with. All right? I, I find it strange that Independence Day this year comes on the heels of our Supreme Court's decision to strip the citizens of all 50 states of our constitutional right to engage in the democratic process of determining for ourselves whether to accept or reject same-sex marriage. The court's majority, Justices Kennedy, Breyer, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Sotomayor, used torturous logic, a creative interpretation of history, the quiet assumption that our Constitution is an evolving document, and judicial arrogance to create a right our Constitution neither has nor even remotely implies the right of same-sex couples to marry. The language used in the majority opinion is beautiful. At times, it is moving. But trying to find something solid to latch onto is a little like trying to find something solid in a marshmallow. Try as hard as one might, there simply is no there there. Only endless fluff. This convergence of reinterpreting history, constitutional evolution, and judicial arrogance becomes apparent when the majority writes, quote, the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own time. The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all of its dimensions, and so they entrusted to future generations a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections and a received legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. Wait a minute. Are we to believe, as Justice Scalia so scathingly points out in his dissenting opinion, that these five justices have been endowed with an insight that no one else in the whole of human history, that no legal scholar ancient or modern, no founding father, nor constitutional scholar ever had? Are they that special? Well, it seems so. The court notes that while marriage shows continuity, it has also undergone changes, and it is not immune from what they call, quote, developments in law and society, close quote. And so, apparently, the logic goes that as the times change, so too must the understanding of our Constitution. It is quite true, as the majority opinion points out, that the ways in which people come to marriage have indeed changed. Arranged marriages have pretty much given away to the avenues of romance and courtship. 
But as Justice Alito notes in his dissenting opinion, the court anxiously avoids, or when avoidance is not possible, minimizes what anyone with the common sense God gives to a goose knows. The one undeniable constant of marriage is that it has always been understood as the union of a man and a woman, since nature and nature's God has so ordered the fertility of man and woman as the norm to conceive children. Now, the court speaks passionately of the need of children with same-sex couples to have the support and security that children in opposite-sex marriages enjoy. But it ignores the obvious, that if same-sex couples have children, and mind you, I've only been celibate for about 28 years now, but they didn't get them from cabbage patches. Storks didn't deliver them. Somewhere along the way, those same-sex couples were dependent on the natural, divinely ordained fertility of a man and a woman. As Justice Alito notes, quote, for millennia, marriage was inextricably linked to the one thing that only opposite-sex couples can do, procreate, close quote. And the marriage of a man and a woman has always been the natural foundation that best ensures the care and raising of children. The court insists that the rights and government benefits opposite-sex married couples enjoy must be extended to same-sex couples. Otherwise, same-sex couples suffer an infringement on their liberty and dignity. But as Justice Thomas notes, the majority ignores that the word liberty has a long and well-established meaning. He writes, quote, since well before 1787, liberty has been understood as freedom from government action, not entitlement to government benefits. The framers created our Constitution to preserve that understanding of liberty. Close quote. And as for one's dignity, never in American history, or might I add, in any orthodox Christian theology, has it ever been thought that dignity comes from either the state or could be removed from this by the state. Rather, one's dignity is inherent in what it is to be human, to be made in the love and the image of God. The court then took the words liberty and dignity, words that resonate powerfully in the minds of Americans, words whose reality so many willingly sacrifice their lives to preserve and then distorted their meaning to achieve the social engineering goal the court wanted. When one distorts words, one distorts reality. If words are not allowed to mean what they mean, they risk becoming meaningless.
the court ignores that marriage has always been a matter for the people of each state to define and set guidelines on. States, for example, regulate the degree of kinship within which persons may marry. States also regulate the age for marriage. For some states, the legal age is 18. What's the legal age in Wyoming? 16 with parental consent. Now, what happens if a Wyoming high school teacher and his 16-year-old student wish to marry and the boy's parents give consent? Would it be a legal marriage? According to the Supreme Court, yes. Do the people of Wyoming have any say other than perhaps changing the age of marriage? No. Our right to say anything had been abolished by our court. At this time in Montana, a Mr. Nathan Collier has applied for a marriage license for he and his two wives, claiming that plural marriage is about marriage equality. Now, will the people of Montana have any say about polygamous marriage? Or will the court decide? Time will tell. As a few dissenting judges noted, by denying the constitutional right of people in their states to continue the debate about same-sex marriage and vote on the matter, whatever the outcome, the court has interfered with the democratic process. As Justice Roberts indicated, Eve, it is one thing to debate, to exchange thoughts, to try to persuade through argument and then vote. Even if the outcome is not what one desired, at least one had a say and then can move on. It is another thing altogether for a majority of justices to assume to themselves the power to strip us of our constitutional right to due process, claiming that they know better than we do what is in our best interests, and with only their evolved insight to guide them, declare our Constitution gives same-sex couples the right to marry when it does not. Justice Scalia notes that the court's attack on democracy, quote, is a naked judicial claim to legislative, indeed super legislative power, a claim fundamentally at odds with our system, close quote. One just has to ask, what will be the long-term effects of such an abuse of judicial power in our republic? Can law really be whatever a majority of Supreme Court justices want it to be? Where then do the people go when our Supreme Court, to which we look, to safeguard our rights takes it upon itself the authority to violate our rights to achieve the end it desires. Now, the ruling was not a surprise. 
Gay activists have been well-organized, focused, energized, patient, well-financed, enjoyed support from various elements within the media, and they had sympathy from members of the Supreme Court. On September 27, 2014, Justice Kagan, part of the majority, presided at the same-sex marriage ceremony of her former law clerk and his partner in Maryland. On May 15, 2015, Justice Ginsburg, also of the majority opinion, presided at the same-sex marriage of two men in Washington, D.C. She is alleged to have said that she did so by the power vested in her by the Constitution of the United States. If that's so, that is frightening. Federal judges are required to recuse themselves if they are unable to be impartial. Supreme Court justices, however, do not have to recuse themselves if they do not wish to do so. And there is no authority that can compel them to do so other than their own moral conscience. What will be the impact on those who hold to the traditional understanding of marriage? What are the implications for faithful Christians, Jews, and Muslims for their hospitals, nursing homes, educational institutions, social service agencies? Justice Thomas suggests that there are, quote, potentially ruinous consequences for religious freedom, close quote. It would, of course, be all so easy to throw our hands up in the air in disgust and say, well, it's a done deal, nothing we can do about it. That is precisely what the court and its allies want. We should not give it to them. What should we do? I think of St. Thomas More. He refused to bow to the coercive powers of the state, King Henry VIII, Parliament, and the court. He understood that as a Christian, he was first and foremost a member of the kingdom of God, tasked with making that kingdom visible in his time by the quality of his life rooted in the truth. About to be beheaded, St. Thomas said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And that was his crime. He made God first for the sake of his country. And that, my friends, whatever your church, whatever your faith, is the only crime that we can and we must engage in. We must be good servants of the nation, but God's first which means to speak the truth, however menacing the darkness government creates for us, to pray for those in leadership, even if they persecute us, to defy the political correctness that seeks to erode and silence truth, to vote into all political offices, people of faith, and support them, and support each other, whatever our church, as we exercise our faith in the public arena, whatever the cost. And have no doubts, the days are coming when that cost will be great. God protect 
the United States of America.